Welcome to our Founders Lecture Series. In 1982, Inabara began classes in Bangor with just 86 students and 11 staff. Fast forward four decades and the school has experienced incredible change and growth, welcoming almost 1,200 students and more than 200 staff each day. This series honors a small group of pioneers whose vision led to what Inaburo has become today. In 2023, we continue to welcome guest speakers who are respected thinkers across the domains of education, the arts, psychology, theology, and philosophy to enrich our professional learning community here at Inaburo and more broadly. We hope you enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Inaburo School. My name's Lyndall Tate and I work with the Teaching and Learning Directorate here as the Coordinator for Research and Innovation. It's great to have you here, whether you are a staff member or a parent or whether you are a teacher or leader from the local area, welcome. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Dharawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. On this land, they taught their knowledge, values and beliefs over many generations. This continues to be a place of teaching and learning. And as a school, we also acknowledge and thank our generous God for his guiding hand upon us. This is our third and final Founders Lecture for 2023. The Founders Lecture started last year in 2022 with the series Art, Beauty and the Transcendent. The aim of these lectures is to connect Inabara's long-standing commitment to continual learning and academic rigour with current and emerging thinking at the intersection of education, Christian faith and culture. The lectures have allowed us as a school to engage teachers and leaders from across Sydney, as well as our own staff and community in building ongoing conversations about learning and teaching and leading others. Tonight, we'll be exploring the topic of success. What does it mean for us and those we teach, lead, and perhaps parent to do well? The question's an important one, since even if we can't articulate what we think success is enough to explicitly teach it to the young people in our care, we'll still communicate it by our behaviour, by our emotional responses, by our words, just by our vibe. And so our beliefs about the nature of success will be caught from the young people around us, even if they're not taught. So what we need more than ever in our mechanistic and materialistic world are ways of framing success that are as real and as tangible as getting a good exam result or making a lot of money and yet help to build a more significant and sustainable sense of purpose, meaning, resilience and confidence and that connect us with a more human picture of what it means to do well. The lecture tonight will be given by Max Jegenathan. Max is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. He speaks on the intersection between faith, culture, economics, finance, technology and moral reasoning. Max is a former lawyer and political and policy advisor. His education is from the Australian National University and the University of Oxford. He's currently undertaking a PhD in law. Would you join me in welcoming Max? And just to get to know Max a little bit, I'm going to just ask him a couple of questions. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about where were you born? Where did you grow up? Yeah. So the potted answer to that is that I get my skin color from Sri Lanka, my accent from Australia, my education from England, and my jacket from Singapore. Ah, so excellent. That kind of sums it up. But <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it really I, does. I, I came to Australia when I was just one year old and grew up from Sri Lanka, grew up here, and then spent a couple of years 
do my postgrad study in the UK in Oxford. And then for the last five years, my wife and I have been in Singapore and we just got back to Australia. So we're Sydney siders for the first time. Is there anything you like about Sydney or anything that stands out that you really don't like? So this is a strange thing, but someone said this to me the other day and I've been noticing it for the last five months. And I don't think any Sydney people actually notice, but the air in Sydney is slightly sweeter than the rest of Australia. And it's because of the eucalyptus trees kind of per square kilometre. It's much higher density here. But when you come from another Australian city, especially another country like Singapore, you really notice it. So the air is sweeter here. It's really good to know. Yeah. And Max, you seem to have a bit on your plate. What do you do to wind down, to relax? I come to places like this and speak to people like you. We have three kids, uh, six, four, and one-year-old. We have no idea what we're doing. And so home is... So this is the rest. This is the rest. This is Glad lovely. we could accommodate yeah, you for yeah. a relaxing night. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to hearing from you. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me here. Um, it's a real a blessing and a pleasure to be here with you to talk about this topic that I think is is quite important, chasing success in an age of uncertainty. I wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're, we're here tonight as well. Thank you for your warm welcome uh, and your hospitality here. It's always nice to be at a school like Innerborough. Always prefer to speak with a headset mic like this. When I started speaking a little while ago, these were called Madonna mics. And then they were called Britney mics, and now they're called Taylor mics. And all of that I can understand. What confuses me is why people keep telling me they're skin colored. I don't understand. I don't understand why they keep telling me that. Back when I was working in politics, my colleagues and I used to watch a TV show that some of you will have heard of, I'm sure, called The West Wing. It's a bit old now, but it's just good quality political drama. The president is a president called Josiah Bartlett. He's a fictional president that was invented by the writer of The West Wing, Aaron Sorkin. And Aaron Sorkin, drew from various US presidents and administrations to invent this composite fictional president, Josiah Bartlett. And one of the things he took from John F. Kennedy was a plaque that sits on the president's desk in the Oval Office. And so you would see this plaque again and again watching the West Wing. And the plaque said something that always struck me as a political advisor and still continues to be quite insightful and thought-provoking. It said, the sea is so big and my boat is so small. The sea is so big and my boat is so small. And it always struck me that that would be on the desk of a president of the United States, arguably the most powerful person on the planet, to just be openly acknowledging this reality that the sea is so big and yet my boat is so small. But you can understand, I think it's really just a, a declaration of humility by the writer, yes, of the West Wing, but more so by President John F. Kennedy, and I'm sure many presidents who take that position and anyone in any position of influence, power, leadership, that realizes once they get there how little control they actually have. And they realize how big the sea is and how small our boats are. But it doesn't really matter what position you're in. If you're president of the United States or you're, you're a school parent or a principal or a teacher or just a member of your local community doing what you do to raise your family, it doesn't matter who we are or when we are, the sea is always so big and our boats are always so small. The leadership theorists are telling us that the world is more VUCA than ever before, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And so all these books are being written now about how VUCA the world is and what's changing. But what's interesting is when you look back through human history, the world's always been VUCA. It's VUCA all the time. The great British journalist Malcolm Muggridge said, history is just the same stuff happening again and again to different people. 
And we're just the different people. We're just kind of the latest round. But that being said, it makes sense for us to try and make sense of our world and how it is today and to try and prepare ourselves to navigate this uncertainty and volatility into the future. Because the uncertainty and the storminess of the sea that we're in, in our little boats, broadly can be talked about in two categories, the macro uncertainty and the micro uncertainty. Now, there's a great geopolitical strategist called Peter Zahan, who wrote a book, I think it was last year, called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And he maps out the big picture causes of the uncertainty. And he talks about, I think, six sectors, six areas of the economy or categories of human thought and activity that are going to change tremendously over the next 40 to 50 years. I think he identifies agriculture, energy, finance, materials, manufacturing, and transport. And in those four things, he talks about the globally aging population. He talks about deglobalization and big shifts in supply chains. He has a few guesses that he makes about how things are going to pan out with Russia, Ukraine, with the rise of China, with the global economy where it is. And he paints a picture of intrinsic and intense volatility and uncertainty that's coming up on these big macro things. But alongside that, there is also micro uncertainty. So if you're interested in those sorts of things, you don't need to read too many newspapers or copies of The Economist to see where he's coming from. But there's also the micro levels of volatility that affect all of us, whether we're interested in global affairs or not. The cost of living, what the RBA is going to do next week, the contractionary pressures on our local economy here in Australia, shifting climate trends. Everyone's nervous, as we correctly should be in Australia and other parts of the Southern Hemisphere, about the fire risk that's coming this summer. And so the shifts and the intrinsic volatility out there affect us in a macro sense. They also affect us in a micro sense. People are rightly worried about salaries and job security and food security and our kids and home ownership and how our kids are going to afford to navigate their way through this uncertain future, even in a local sense. Now, in the midst of all of this, this macro-level uncertainty and this micro-level uncertainty, there are a number of things that we've got to do. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to cover it all exhaustively in one lecture. But there are at least three things I wanted to share with you. At least make a start. Three things that we need to be able to do to embrace and confront the reality that the sea is so big and our boats are so small. And not only is the sea big, but the sea is really stormy and the winds are swirling. And those three things are this. We need to pay attention to and think more deeply through and be more proactive about how we navigate instability, how we rethink independence, and how we define success. Navigating instability, rethinking independence, and defining success. As individuals, as families, as educators, as leaders, wherever we are in our stage of life, we are all going to be called on to do these three things at the very least. Navigating instability, rethinking independence, and redefining how we understand the concept of success. So first of all, navigating instability. And like I said, the volatility is there and the volatility is intrinsic. The problem is the prevailing cultural idea out there, what we are constantly being fed in our media and in our conventional wisdom and in the systems that we have set up for ourselves, is that the best option with the instability is to try and predict the storm and navigate our way around it. And so we're constantly looking for more and more data. We're constantly looking for formulas, for predictions, for forecasts to try and make sense of what the world and where the world is going. Now, there's a sociologist called George Ritzer, and he coined the term McDonaldization. He said, in the last hundred years, we have McDonaldized our societies. And he talks about four things that a McDonaldized world values above anything else. 
efficiency, predictability, calculability, and control. These four things, he says, are the foundation stones on which modern society has been built. Efficiency, predictability, calculability, and control. Now, the thing about a volatile and uncertain world is you can do efficiency and you can do calculability. So you can learn to do more with less. You can get more productive. You can invent your way into being more efficient. And all of the industrial revolutions that we've had are good evidence of this. The artificial intelligence revolution that we're on the front end of at the moment is a good example of this. Renewable energy. That's all part of increasing efficiency. Calculability we can do as well. The third thing that he lists. It's just keeping track of things, systematizing things, calculating things. We can always do that pretty well too. The problem is with predictability and control. We can't do predictability and control well. We've never actually been able to, but we've been able to kid ourselves quite effectively in the past that maybe we do have some sense of control and we can predict things. But the predictability myth is becoming more and more obviously a myth with every news headline, with every week, with every war, with every unexpected event and with every year. Now, the behavioral economist Nicholas Nassim Taleb coined the phrase and wrote the book literally on the concept of the black swan, right? The black swan is this unpredictable ambush style event that defies all of our predictions and all of our models and all of our guesses as to what's about to happen. This black swan event is what comes out of nowhere. 9-11 was a black swan event. COVID-19 was a black swan event. The Russia-Ukraine war, arguably aspects of it for some people, was a black swan event. When I was growing up, I went to high school in Perth, right? God's other country. <laughs> And I remember growing up and studying economics there and then even coming across to Canberra and studying it at university and learning about this black swan concept. And that was very confusing to me because for those of you who know, in Perth, we have a ton of swans and they're all black. All the swans in Perth are black. And of course, it's because where this term, the black swan, was coined in psychology and economics and behavioral sciences was all in the North Atlantic. It was all Northern Hemisphere. It was the Northern Americas uh, and continental Europe and so forth. And there, all the swans by and large are white. So it made sense then. And I never fully understood the concept. I'm like, how can it be unexpected if it's a black swan? All the swans are black where I grew up. Once I worked it out, of course, it made sense. But now the Perth paradigm of black swan thinking is actually much more accurate. Because in reality, all the swans are black now. Every week, every news headline, every moment we wake up, there's a new black swan. There's something unexpected that's happening that solidifies the reality that the world around us is intrinsically volatile and uncertain in a macro sense and an, in a micro sense. And so in the midst of this uncertainty and unpredictability, trying to navigate around the storm or trying to even guess where the storm is going or where it's going to be is kind of futile because there's one thing about all predictions. They're all based on data and all data is necessarily from the past. That's the problem. Predictions about the future are anchored in the past. And at their best, mathematically, the math teachers in the room will know, at best what these predictions can do is mildly extrapolate where we're going to go from where we are now. But mild extrapolations don't account for black swans. You can't read that COVID's happening. And of course, as soon as a black swan comes, everyone becomes an expert. And after COVID was happening, everyone says, oh, it's only a matter of time before this happens again. Well, where were you a few months ago, mate? right? Everyone's an expert now on the next black swan. After 9-11, that's when all the airport security, airport security gets heightened. Where was that two weeks before 9-11, right? So we kind of trick ourselves into thinking that we can do things like forecast and predict. 
But really, the black swans are everywhere. And what we need is not a pathway to predict where the storms are or navigate around them. What we need is some body of first principles to anchor ourselves to outside of the storm. The intrinsic instability of the world calls for resilience, not predictive power and control. Predictive power is non-existent. It's a bit of an oxymoron. And control is a myth. What we need is actually resilience. We don't know what's going to come. What we need are first principles, base level principles, irreducible principles that we can hold on to, regardless of what happens in the storm. And it's a whole other series of lectures, but I'm talking about first principles like what it means to be human. What are the supreme ethics? What's the nature and value of something like sacrifice? Right? These first principles of life and living and lifestyle that we can hold to and anchor to regardless of what's happening in the storm, regardless of what the uncertainty and the volatility are springing up. So that's the first thing we need. If we're going to work out how to navigate instability, we need not a map around it or predictions on where the storm's going to be, but we need a system of first principles to hold on to that can help us navigate through the storm. Secondly, rethinking independence. Now, this is a tough one because, again, the prevailing cultural message is ubiquitous. It's kind of everywhere. And the idea is that we need to strive for independence. Everyone wants to be independent. It has very positive correlations in modern society, being independent. It's about strength and resilience and mental health and basically not being dependent. We want our kids to be independent. We want to be independent. We correlate dependence with weakness. And we correlate independence with strength. And so again, we tell ourselves this story that we can self-improve and self-actualize and self-develop our way into flourishing and into security and into safety and ultimately into success. But again, when we look at the reality of it, that's not quite how it flies. But that's how the world runs the argument, right? So there was an old philosopher called Robert Bella. He called it the age of expressive individualism. Right? More recent moral theorists like Charles Taylor have called it the age of authenticity. The hashtags just call it you do you, your best self, your best life. Frank Sinatra just called it my way. It's all the same stuff. It's just do it your way. You do you. Emotivism based on what you want, based on how you feel. You can self-help your way into it. And everything from how to win friends and influence people to the present, to the gift, to eat, pray, love, to everything as it's been said from Oprah to Chopra, right, is on this line. All you need is what you've got inside you, your desires and your ability to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. There's an old movie called The Martian starring Matt Damon, and he basically gets stranded on Mars. He's an astronaut on man's first fictional mission to Mars, and there's an explosion at the beginning of the movie, and a couple of the astronauts are killed, and the rest of them have to launch an emergency evacuation back to Earth. And just as they're lifting off back to Earth, as the opening credits are rolling, the camera pans back to one of the dead bodies on Mars, and he's not dead. He was just knocked unconscious. And he wakes up, and the character's name is Mike Watney. He's played by Matt Damon. And now he's in this ridiculous situation where he's trapped on Mars. And he has to regenerate his oxygen supply, grow his own food, make contact with NASA, somehow make his way home. And the whole narrative arc of that movie is about the wonder and the beauty and the power of human self-rescue and self-help of engineering and innovation and science. And at the end of the movie, and this is a spoiler, he makes it home. 
you had like 12 years to watch the movie. So I don't take responsibility for that. It's good though. It's still worth watching. And also you're not going to star Matt Damon and then kill him off halfway through the movie. At the end of the movie, it's kind of a flash forward to 10 years later. And Mike Watney, who's now a professor at the NASA Academy, is giving a lecture to a bunch of cadets. And he says, it's really important that you apply yourselves when you're here. Because when you're out there, and he's speaking both literally and metaphorically, and he's, of course, an international celebrity having gone through this incredible ordeal. He says, when you're out there, you're going to be presented with a problem at some point. And if you solve that problem, you'll be presented with another problem. And if you solve that problem, you'll be presented with another problem. And he goes on and on like this. And then one of the last lines of the movie is this. He says, and if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. If you solve enough problems, you get to come home. That is the modern message that we tell our kids and our grandkids and ourselves and each other when it comes to the idea of independence. If you work hard enough and self-help yourself enough and self-develop and self-optimize enough and solve enough problems, you will get to come home. You will flourish. You will find success. You will find happiness. But it's on you. You've got to do you. It's all about self-rescue. And the great irony, of course, is that even in that movie, which is entirely fictional, they could have written that any way they wanted, and they set out to write a movie about self-actualization and the human capacity for science and innovation and self-help. Even in fiction, they couldn't do it. How does he get home? He's rescued. They have to go back and get him. That's how he gets back. So even in the world of fiction, something comes through very clearly. We are all dependent and we all need rescue. Anyone who says that they're independent in any way is just shifting the goals slightly, but is in the same paradigm. So if you have a huge investment portfolio and a great super fund and you're divested across different currencies and you have stocks and bonds and equities and you own property in every part of Sydney and you say, I'm financially independent, and that gives you a lot of solace. You take comfort in that. That helps you sleep at night. All that's happened is that you've become dependent on the idea of financial independence. That's all that's happened. If you surround yourself with family and the adulation of people who love you and you get constantly liked on Facebook and retweeted on X and shared on Instagram and you say, I have my reputation, I have my brand, I know who I am. Have you seen my LinkedIn profile? I'm not dependent on anything. I don't need money. I don't need all the houses that that guy's got or the super fund that that guy's got. All you become is become dependent on social adulation and social affirmation. So all of us are dependent on something. The only question is, what are we dependent on? And in rethinking independence, what I want to put to you is that what we actually need is not a way to self-optimize and just get better at everything so we can self-actualize and self-rescue. What we need is a trustworthy object of our dependence. We need something in the same way that rethinking or navigating instability is about first principles that we can hold to that are outside of ourselves and outside of the storm. Rethinking independence is about an objective and trustworthy subject of our trust and our dependence that's outside of ourselves. We need something that we can trust in outside of ourselves rather than just being told again and again to trust in ourselves again and again. We need something outside of the storm and outside of the, ourselves that we can put our trust in, right? So navigating instability rethinking independence. Thirdly and finally, defining success, actually understanding success. What is that? Now, again, this is a whole series of lectures, but broadly speaking, success today, according to prevailing cultural ideas, is about roughly four things, right? Achievement, acquisition, 
status and experience. So achievement, our CV, our resume. Acquisition, our bank accounts, right? Our, our net wealth. Status, what other people think of us, right? Our reputation, how we go on social media, how many people are looking at our stuff and, and liking. And experience, where are we going for our holidays? Where are we able to go out to eat? How are we enjoying life? And it's interesting because the last two actually go together now. Status and experience kind of have to go together because we try to boost our status by living out better and better experiences and making sure other people see them, right? So I'll get back to that. So quickly, just to deconstruct why that's the case, why these four things, why achievement, acquisition, status, and experience? A number of things could be said, but it's three primary driving factors, I want to say, over the last 150 years. The first is that we've just gotten really good in the last couple of hundred years at generating wealth, at generating material success and material prosperity. There's an economist called Jay Bradford DeLong who's written a book recently, I think late last year or early this year, called Slouching Towards Utopia. And he talks about the broad distinction between kind of what the big influences on Western civilization between the 1500s and the late 1800s and how that shifted from the late 1800s until now. And he used this kind of metaphor, if you like, or analogy of the Reformation. And for those of you who are familiar with it, the Reformation's punctuated by a few different basic philosophical and theological um, premises. And those are, one of those are, at least, by faith alone, sola fide, right? Sola fide, sola scriptura, um, and by Christ alone too, sola Christus. And he said we've shifted from that for the for 300 years of Western civilization to from around 1870, it's now sola mercato, by the market alone. Once we got industrializing, and we've been through three, arguably four rounds of the Industrial Revolution, right from you know the printing press, moving to steam power, moving to the automobile, to human flight, to manufacturing, to early stage computing, to the internet, and now into robotics, and then into artificial intelligence. Now, over 150 years of this, we have gotten really good at, funnily enough, the stuff that George Ritzer was talking about, the McDonaldization, efficiency, predictability, calculability, and control. And the way we know that is because economic growth before the industrial revolutions ran at about 0.1% per year. So pretty much nothing, a rounding error. We really weren't generating wealth for many tens of thousands of years. We were growing stuff and living off stuff and doing stuff, but the wealth was concentrated in the hands of very few people mainly the merchant class, and mainly, to be honest, kings and queens and emperors. Right? Then, once we started industrializing, economic growth went from 0.1% a year for X thousand years before that to 4% a year for the last 150 years on average. And we know it's m much higher than that in some years, and some countries, even in this economic climate, are running at 7 8%, 9%. But for a species to go from 0.1% growth in material wealth to 4% growth in material wealth is huge. It doesn't matter who you are or what income you're on. If I told you your income would increase 40-fold tomorrow, that would change the way you lived, you thought, you smiled, you acted, probably where you went after this lecture was over. But that is the gravity of what our species has gone through for the last 150 years. We got a 40-fold increase to our income. And so, to put it bluntly, there's just more material for the ism to cling on to. That's why we have materialism, because there's all this new material. We're just generating wealth and doing it really, really well. We've yanked hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's been amazing. The quality of life for humankind has increased exponentially from 1870 until now. And so that's a big reason why achievement and acquisition have become a thing. There's just more to acquire. There's more to achieve educationally, financially, 
corporately, industrially. And so that's a big driver. The second of the three reasons for these conventional methods of success is attributable to a lot of things, but I want to use the example of a guy called Edward Bernays. Some of you may have heard of him. He's not very well known, but he was a seminal writer and thinker around the turn of the century, around the 1900s. He was also the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who was pioneering psychoanalysis. And he used a lot of his uncle Sigmund's ideas to basically revolutionize consumer thinking and how consumers in modern society are targeted. His basic idea, which sounds ridiculously basic now, was let's try and get people buying stuff based on what they want rather than based on what they need. Because before that, even though there was a market and it was relatively free, kind of since Adam Smith, people were really just buying what they needed. And if you look at any of the old advertising in like the 1800s, it's really lame, right? So it'll be like some guy advertising soap saying, hey, you need soap. When you finish that soap, we make soap. Come buy this soap and then you'll have soap. It was very mechanical, subsistence-level advertising. And then Bernays said, if we can get these people buying things based on what they want and how they see themselves and how they want other people to see them, we can make a lot more money. And that's where, arguably, was the modern marketing profession invented. It's where modern marketing actually came from, this idea. And we're all part of that. We're all swimming in that post-Bernays marketing paradigm. And the reason we all are, and if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but not me, I get this consumerism, it's rampant, but not me. All you have to do is count how many feet you have and how many pairs of shoes you have. And if that number doesn't match, you're in. You're with us. You're consuming based at least in some sense on desire rather than need, right? How many jackets, how many torsos, right? This idea of the material being generated much more rapidly and people now suddenly starting to consume based on desire rather than need has been accompanied by our digital interconnectedness in the last probably 20 to 30 years. And that's really topped it off because now not only are we making more of everything, everyone's got more of everything, everyone wants more of everything, but now we're showing everyone else what we've got of everything too. And so the internet alone has driven status and experience into a new place in terms of our metrics of success. And we all, again, are part of this in some way, shape or form, different people to different degrees. Uh, I know I'm not you know, passing judgment or anything, but I've had the pleasure of going to the Louvre in Paris when I was about 10 years old. And I went again with my wife a few years ago. And the difference when you go and see the Mona Lisa now is stark. For anyone that's been there in the last 10 years will know this. When you go into the room where you see the Mona Lisa now, no one's looking at the Mona Lisa. Everyone's walking through, facing away from her, taking a selfie with her. And I watched people never actually even turning and looking because the only point of being in there was to get a selfie with the Mona Lisa. It's just a symbol, but I think it's a pretty powerful example of status and experience, how these things have come together. It doesn't seem to count now whatever we do unless other people see what we do. When I used to speak in Singapore, and I think this trend is more prevalent in parts of Southeast Asia, but it very much is in play here in Sydney too. People say, how would you define fear in the 21st century middle class? I'd say, fear is my neighbor having two BMWs when I've only got one. That's achievement, acquisition, status, and experience kind of molded into this definition of success that we've got. The big problem with this definition of success is that it's not working. The metrics of human flourishing are not tracking with the wealth generation, with the material acquisition, with the status boosting 
and with the experience having. All of the deeper markers of human flourishing haven't really moved. Anxiety, depression, social dislocation, inequality, social exclusion, relationship breakdowns, all of these things are not really moving anywhere. In fact, if anything, it's starting to go the other way. There's an OECD statistic that the higher the GDP per capita of a country, the greater the need for psychiatrists per square kilometer in that country. So there's actually a problem. Our metrics of success are not only making us happier, they're kind of pushing us the other way. They're making us more confused. There's more anxiety now. We're meant to be, and we are, the most educated, technologically advanced, financially enhanced society in human history. And yet all of these metrics haven't really moved anywhere meaningful. So what does that mean? It means that we need a definition of success based on something other than desire. Something about those four subcategories of success today, achievement, accumulation, status, and experience, they're all based on desire. It all comes back to the you do you. It's what do you want and how do you feel? What we need is a frame for our success and a definition for our success that's based in something other than desire. Now, Mark Twain is helpful on this. Some of you will have heard this line. He said, the two most important days in a person's life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. He is doing something there that you barely see in all of human history. He is anchoring his idea of success, not to desire, but to purpose. He's anchoring success to purpose. And so here, I submit, is what we need when we redefine success. We need a model of success based on a transcendent and a higher purpose, a purpose that's outside the storm. So we look back now. We need to navigate instability. We need to rethink independence and we need to redefine success. Alongside each of those, I identified three things that we need in order to fulfill those tasks. The first is we need a set of first principles, an ethical and moral frame of first principles outside of the storm. Then we need an object of trust that's trustworthy and dependable outside of the storm. And then we need a model of success that's based in purpose outside of the storm. And then we turn to this Christian message, to what the Bible offers. And any worldview worth its salt needs to answer all of those three questions. And the Bible answers it in an incredible way, in a powerful and a compelling and a resonant way. It offers that set of first principles. It offers, first of all, the ultimate first principle, the human being being made in the image of God with intrinsic dignity with intrinsic freedom, with moral agency. And it offers an entire moral and metaphysical layer to all of life. First principles that will hold through whatever storm comes, that literally has been proven to have survived wars and genocide and all kinds of evil and revolutions and famine and pandemics. And these first principles hold outside of the storm, these Christian principles. Secondly, it offers a dependable, trustworthy, object of our trust. A God who literally steps into the world as a person and takes onto himself the suffering and the brokenness of all of humankind, takes on the volatility and the uncertainty and the storm itself onto himself as a person, dies on a cross, rises from the dead, then invites us into relationship with him. That is the most remarkable example and demonstration of trustworthiness in human history. So we have a a God who's proved himself not just to be all-powerful, but all-personal as well. He's literally proved himself trustworthy in human history, not just theologically, though that is there, not just philosophically, though that is there, not just metaphysically, though that is there, but practically and personally proven himself trustworthy. So we have first principles, 
outside of the system, transcendent first principles. We have an all-powerful, all-personal God offering himself as the object and worthy of our dependence and our trust. So thirdly then, what about a transcendent purpose? And I said that Mark Twain's rare, but 2,000 years before Mark Twain anchored success to purpose, Jesus was asked by a religious lawyer. I love that it's always lawyers that get beaten up in the, in the New Testament. He's asked by a religious lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? What are we supposed to do? Right? He's asked for a formula. He's asked for a McDonaldization answer. Efficiency, predictability, calculability, control. This guy comes in, he's like, right, how do I hack this system? What do I need to do? Just tell me what to do. And Jesus blows the question up. He does it respectfully because he's classy, but he basically turns the question on its head. He said, it's not really what you do. He says, go and love God and love other people. What he's saying, he's asked for an instruction, a commandment, a formula, and he gives two purposes. He says, the reason you were made are to be in loving relationship with God and loving relationship with one another. So he offers these two transcendent purposes, these two transcendent meanings for human life outside of the storm. He said, you can anchor your success however you want. You can keep seeking after achievement and accumulation and status and experience, or you can measure your success against the degree to which you are investing in your relationship with God and the degree to which you're investing in your relationships with the people around you, your family, your friends, your colleagues, people in need people close to you, people in your circles and spheres of influence and contact. That's the higher definition of success, anchored in not one purpose, but two. And the, these two purposes are anchored in something that we often forget in the modern world, relationality. Humankind was made for relationship. And we see that relationality running through all three categories. The first principles are anchored in relationship. People are made in God's image. They're his masterpieces. They're made for relationship. The all-powerful God is a personal God. He's trustworthy. He wants to relate. He wants us in relationship with him. And success is measured against these two categories of relationship as well, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. It's why this Christian message uniquely speaks into the very challenges that we as a society, that we as individuals, that we as families, that we as a community, but that we as a global society are facing come the next 10, 15, 50 years. How we embrace those principles and communicate the truth and beauty and goodness of that message as effectively a perfect fit for what humankind needs. It's always been a perfect fit. What I've shared with you is just a little bit about how it's a perfect fit in this particular season around this particular reality of uncertainty and volatility. Now, you know, I'm a lawyer and a former political advisor, so not entirely trustworthy. But I've only lied to you about one thing so far tonight. Everything I've said has been true, except when I said at the start that the plaque on JFK's desk said, the sea is so big and my boat is so small. The plaque actually says, oh God, your sea is so big and my boat is so small. That is the metaphysical and supernatural game changer because the sea will always be big and stormy and our boats will always be small. But as soon as we acknowledge that it's his sea, and that he's willing to get into the boat with us, then we know for those of us who are willing to step into that journey, that adventure, that relationship, one of two things will always happen. Either he will calm the storm or the storm will swirl, which tends to happen more and more, and he will calm us within the storm. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for that, Max. I was trying to think of some way to summarize what you just said, and it was absolutely impossible for me to do that. I thought, wow, that's just like a, uh, you know, a roller coaster ride through so much history and economics and psychology and philosophy and theology. On one level, there's so many things you can 
grab into. Maybe you want to grab into the idea that, uh, you know, there is this metaphysical reality that gives life purpose beyond the economic rationality in which we generally live our lives. Or maybe you want to just pick up something about what Max has spoken about in terms of sort of understanding some of those themes and some of those historical processes that have led to where we are now, which we are all engaged in to some degree or other. I thought, I have more than two shoes. I know that. Mm. I don't know how many you have. We are all part of this system, the economic system. And simply being part of that sometimes leads us to accept the metaphysical principles that we are just economic participants rather than spiritual, personal, or at where you finished, relational. But look, thank you so much, Max. Thank I, you. You've made my mind just whir at a, a rapid pace. Uh, there was a word that I, I thought you might like that I found out, out about just recently. It's tatterdemalion. Now, tatterdemalion is a yeah. person who walks around in tattered clothes, which would be what you would end up as if you only had one shirt, one pair of shorts, one pair of shoes. Yeah, well. It's fantastic work. It sounds like tattered. You can all visualize the type of person that I'm, I've just described, right? But we don't live that way because we all take part in this world and, and in this, you know, capitalist society that mm. we live in. And that's not the problem. The problem is when we identify in a particular way with that. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I think how we present and what we do and say and think and feel needs to be done in respectful and compelling and loving and sacrificial and convicted ways. The risk is, and if there's one idea that came through I'd like to, you to keep from all of this, is that we don't become spiritually tatterdemalion, like that metaphysical side of our lives and that part of the social fabric should never become tatterdemalion. Great word. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great word, isn't it? Yeah. If we could just thank Max once more. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Founders Lecture Series. For more information about Inabara School and Community, visit www.inabara.newsouthwales.edu.au and hit follow on the Inabara Podcast channel for a range of upcoming content.